The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Jason, it will not be with us tonight. I've got to say something, and I wasn't going to mention this before, um, but it's getting a little bit um, serious. Actually, it's been serious for a while. It's getting more serious. Um, Jason has been uh, dealing with uh, his father, who's very, very ill, and um, he took a severe turn for the worse uh, late in the middle of the week last week, and it's gotten worse today. So Jason's not going to be with us for a couple days anyway. Um, We're not really sure what's going to happen, uh, but I know that all of you will be sending as much love and positive energy as you can for Jason's dad. Um, I do the same. So um, hopefully that helps. Um, if nothing else, hopefully it comforts uh, Jason in uh, this difficult time for him. So we'll carry on here, of course, and do the program as best we can. Um, and we'll hope to have Jason back soon uh, on a good note. That's what we're hoping for anyway. We do have a really great program for you lined up tonight. I'm a little bit hoarse. I, I just spent the weekend in Ohio as most of you know, in Cleveland at an event called Dark Xmas. I was there with Rebecca Foster. We had uh, a fantastic time, saw a lot of great people, met some of you, which was really, really awesome. And uh, But my, I pay for it for a few days afterward. Um, we have to, uh, you know, bear, bear through this uh, hoarseness and whatever else, <laughs> the exhaustion, whatever it is that uh, yeah, that happens when um, you, you attend an event like that. It's well worth it. I love doing it, um, but I do pay a price for a few days. So um, bear with me. We will still uh, get through this without any problem. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking with Seth Shawstack. He is an astronomer. He's actually a senior astronomer for SETI which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, we'll be talking about the search for intelligent life in outer space. Is it out there? If it is, how are we going to get in touch with it? Do we want to get in touch with it? Is this something we want to do? I know there are a lot of people working on it, so some people surely think that's something we need to do. And Seth will talk about that tonight. I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, Tomorrow night, Al Ridenauer is going to be with us. He is an author and a podcaster. We're going to talk about his book called The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. It's the only English-language book that explores the Krampus tradition in depth. Now, Krampus Day, I think, is December 5th, so it's coming up relatively soon. And ever since that film came out a few years ago, um, which portrayed Krampus as a very, very evil character, um, there's been a lot more attention in in what Krampus is about and what the legend is about. And uh, we'll learn a lot more about that on Tuesday night with Al Ridenauer. And then um, we're going to have a couple of uh, days of uh, some best-of programs as we all take a break to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, we I think we all need that. I hope everybody's got some really great plans scheduled for uh, Thanksgiving, gets to spend the time with some friends and some family, get a little bit of a break from the rat race, if you will, and enjoy yourselves and enjoy maybe a good meal. You know, that's always part of it. I'm going to try to avoid the good meal this year. I'm just like the food thing. I'm just kind of tired of the food thing. You know, I don't need to eat so much every time there's a gathering. I do, but I don't need to. Um, you know, when I got back from Ohio, uh, one of the things that I came home to is, this is this is just bizarre to me. Um, my uh, black lab, who is 14 years old, she's been a fantastic dog. 
um, woke up Sunday morning before I had gotten home and not able to walk, not able to move her back legs. She's been relatively healthy, but uh, really has been somewhat um, arthritic for some time. She moves slow, you know, but she gets around. Well, she couldn't move at all Sunday morning. And, you know, thoughts of a stroke or, or you know, some other very, very serious uh, occurrence had come to everyone's mind. And she ended up going to the vet before I got home. And it turns out she has doggy vertigo. Has anybody ever heard of doggy vertigo? It's uh, it's bizarre. Um, she's better today, but she walks like she's drunk. <laughs> it's really kind of funny. It's hard not to laugh. But uh, the poor thing is, uh, you know, she, she sits there and she tilts her head. She, she just can't keep her head straight. It's very, very bizarre. But the good news is it looks like she'll recover and, and she'll be fine. You've heard of it. Some people have heard of it in our chat room. I This is new to me. Um, very, very new to me. Um, so we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. I'll remind you to visit the Facebook page and the website. Uh, the website has the Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug on it, which is a great, great holiday gift uh, for anybody on your holiday list. It looks good. It keeps coffee nice and warm for you, and it makes it taste yummy or hot chocolate or tea or anything that you happen to prefer. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great holiday gift, and it's right on the website. You just click on the picture of the mug, and it'll take you through the ordering process. Uh, and it also supports the show, helps people share your uh, appreciation for and your love of Beyond Reality Radio. So we like, we like, you, uh, we like you doing that for us, too. Um, okay, so let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll bring our guests in. Again, we're going to be talking with Seth Shawstack. He's an astronomer. He's actually a senior astronomer for SETI. It's going to be a great conversation about the search for extraterrestrial life. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of course, uh, I mentioned it earlier, Jason won't be with us tonight. Um, he's got some personal things he, he needs to attend to, and we're all sending very positive thoughts and love his way, of course. But we have a great program lined up for you. Tonight we're going to be speaking with she- uh, Seth Shawstack. He's an astronomer. In fact, he's a senior astronomer for SETI. And we're going to be talking about the search for intelligent life in outer space, in the cosmos. Seth, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a real honor to have you on the show tonight. Thank you very much, JV. So, first thing I have to ask you is the million-dollar question. Are we alone in the universe? Well, uh, there's a, it, the question may be worth a million bucks, but uh, the answer is probably not worth terribly much yet because we don't know. <laughs> there's uh, no compelling evidence that uh, we have any cosmic company, although it would be stunning if we didn't. 
Yeah, I mean, when you start talking about the numbers involved, you talk about the numbers of stars, suns that have the numbers of planets orbiting them, and the numbers of galaxies that exist. I mean, just basically in the universe that we know of. I mean, the numbers have to say somewhere along the way we it would be hard to believe we are alone, right? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the number of planets in, in our galaxy is on the order of a trillion, and the number of galaxies we can see is on the order of a trillion. So uh, that means there are like a trillion, trillion stars, or rather planets, in the visible universe. And as you just point out, uh, the visible universe is probably only a tiny fraction of the actual universe. But in any case, if you buy a trillion, trillion lottery tickets, you know, they're not all losers. So <laughs> I, just... I, I think it's pretty likely we'll have... We'll have some uh, company out there. Yeah, it, you know, and, and those numbers are staggering. I'm not even sure that they're, they're numbers that can be comprehended in just normal in the normal course of discussion or thought. Um, those odds are just so compelling that we'd have to believe we aren't alone. However, having said that, the distances are so great that uh, that presents a completely different challenge. Well, it does if you want to go somewhere. I mean, uh, it, it, it's not really a challenge if you're, you're happy to stay fairly close to home. But if uh, your intention is to go either boldly or some other way uh, to the stars, then you can build the Starship Enterprise. Maybe. I don't know how to do it. But if you were to do that, you know, you've got some real problems with the physics and uh, having it to go anywhere within a human lifetime. So, so that's a problem. Travel is a problem. But, um, you know, learning things might not be a problem because you can send information at the speed of light. And, of course, the universe has been around for a long time. So it could very well be that, uh, you know, through the, through the space that surrounds you and me as we sit here talking, there could be all sorts of information coming from somebody else's society. Let's talk about that for a second. And I don't want to get too far ahead in our conversation here. But those dis- distances are, um, are are vast, and even something traveling at the speed of light, let's say it's radio waves that we're sending out, some kind of signal we're sending or we're hoping to receive, um, you know, something that's uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of light years away, um, you know, we haven't been able to send a signal long enough for it to really get very far, um, and I would imagine the reverse would be true if it was coming at us. Well, certainly in terms of what we've sent out, obviously – or maybe it isn't so obvious, but uh, we're not actually deliberately broadcasting to aliens. I mean, there have been a few, you know, efforts, mostly as stunts more than anything else, in which uh, you know, people would aim a transmitter at a nearby star. NASA even did that back in, what was it, 1998 or, no, 2008, 2008. They sent, uh, you know, some Beatles music to the North Star. Well, you know, you're right, the North Star is pretty close, but it's still 400 light years away. So that signal, that music will take 400 years to get there. So, you know, anybody that's farther away from us than, say, 70 light years isn't going to pick up anything if they aim their antennas at Earth, right? Because we've been broadcasting basically since the Second World War. On the other hand, to say that, well, there hasn't been enough time for them to get in touch with us, that's not necessarily true because, you know, the universe is three times as old as the Earth. So they've had a couple extra billion years to uh, launch messages into space that could be reaching us right now. Right. 
but, and this is the big but as well, we have, uh, you know, if, if it was something a thousand light years away that was coming at us, um, we'd ha- from our understanding of life, it would be hard to comprehend that those beings would still exist there. It'd be maybe different generations or, or those civilizations could be long gone. They could have come and gone. Um, and I guess that's part of the big question, isn't it? Well, yeah. On the other hand, I mean, it seems to be very uh, trendy these days to assume that uh, humanity doesn't have very much time left. I'm not sure I buy that at all, but, you know, it's hard to get rid of all humans. I mean, you can try. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good weekend project, but it's, it's really hard to do. You can let loose all the nuclear weapons or, you know, you can uh, have a pandemic or, or climate change. All these things are bad, but none of them would get rid of all humans. It's really hard to get rid of all humans. But uh, so I, I don't think that we only have another thousand years. I mean, Homo sapiens has been sort of traipsing around the planet for 200,000 years. And you can say, well, most of that time they weren't doing very much that was interesting. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a matter of opinion. But uh, to say, well, after 200,000, we only have one more thousand left, I, I'm, I'm not that pessimistic. So we've got just a couple minutes here before we have to go to break. How did you get started in all of this? This is fascinating work. Where, where did you start? Well, I studied uh, physics and then astronomy, and um, I was a radio astronomer. I was using big antennas to study galaxies, actually. And uh, it occurred to me one late night when I was doing observations for my, uh, for my dissertation, actually, that the equipment that I was using to study galaxies could also be used to possibly eavesdrop on extraterrestrial signals. And that was kind of a, an interesting idea. And later on in my career, I had the opportunity to actually try an experiment like that, to actually try and listen for signals. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, uh, I got a phone call from the SETI Institute here in the Silicon Valley, and they said, you interested in a job here? So that's how it happened, a series of, uh, if you will, accidents. Were you like so many of us who, as kids, would go outside and just look up at the, if you, if you were in a place where you were fortunate enough to be able to see the night sky and not have so much light pollution, I was, where you, but you'd look up in just amazement. Well, I, I don't know that I did that, actually. I mean, I was very interested in astronomy, but I was interested in many things. Now, I built a, I built a telescope at age, I think it was 10, and... Uh, you know, I, I used it, but I used it on the neighbors, too. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I used it mostly to look at the planets. Deep sky objects were not really an option where I lived because I was in suburbia, but it was a pretty bright suburbia. There were a lot of street lamps and things like that. So I would look at the planets, yes, for sure. But, uh, you know, I, I found that interesting, but there were many things that I found interesting at the time. And how long have you been working with SETI again? Well, I've been at the SETI Institute since 1990, I think. Uh, I did some SETI experiments even before that, believe it or not, but as an astronomer working in an astronomy department. You also have, um, I believe it's a podcast, right? The uh, Big Big Picture Science, is that a, a regular podcast that you do? It's a podcast. It's also a broadcast. We're on, I don't know, 140 stations or something. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's... It's cut to a broadcast clock, but we also release it as a podcast. So Big Picture Science is available. Obviously, you can get it online or, you know, uh, iTunes or all the usual outlets. But you can also hear it uh, in a lot of places, in fact. And, of course, you have a website, bigpicturescience.org. And you also have information on SETI 
Uh, I believe is that SETI.org as well? SETI.org, you got it. Our guest tonight, Seth Shostak, is the, is a senior astronomer for SETI. Uh, check out his website, bigpicturescience.org. And uh, Seth, I guess uh, the next place to go in this conversation is kind of get an update. What is the latest in the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life in the universe? Well, I think uh, a number of things have changed over the past, well, it's been something like, what, 50, 60 years since the first modern SETI experiment. That was back in 1960, so it's even more than 60 years, right? Yeah. Uh, no. No, it would be 58. Yeah, 58 <laughs> <Whatever>. years. <laughs> but, yes, yes, it, it hasn't been that long. Uh, but there, there are two things that have changed. The technology has changed and the science has changed. So as far as the first, you know, back then the number of channels that were uh, available to the receiver to try and eavesdrop on ET's broadcast, there was one channel. It was like, you know, like your television set or your radio. You only get one channel at a time, right? I mean, you could turn the knob and then you get more or, you know, hit the, the, the clicker and you get more, but you only get one at a time. Well, that's a bad way to look for ET because you don't know what, what channel ET might be on and you don't want to just sort of sit there twiddling the knob because it would take you, you know, a millennium to get through all the channels that you might want to try out and listen to each one of them for, say, a minute or two. So the technology change is the development of receivers that can monitor millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of channels simultaneously. So that's a, that's a big improvement because that means everything can be done very much faster. So it's like, uh, you know, giving one of those explorers of the, the 16th century, you know, like Jim Cook or one of these guys, give them a steamship instead of a sailboat and a sailing ship, and then maybe they can find, uh, find new lands a lot more quickly. The second thing that's changed is the astronomy, the science, if you will. What we didn't know back in the early days of all this was, uh, you know, whether there were a lot of planets out there or not. And now we know, well, there are a lot of planets out there, and really countless planets. Almost every star has planets. We didn't know that. Now we do know that, and that kind of simplifies the search, too, because you don't have to wait for somebody to find a planet before you have something to point the antenna at. So at what point did that technology change, whereby instead of being able to listen to one frequency at a time, we can monitor so many simultaneously? Well, most of that is due to the developments of uh, digital electronics, which is kind of a fancy, fancy way of saying uh, computers. And that began to change in the 1970s. I mean, it's, it's been a continuous improvement. It's like saying, well, when did the first, you know, personal computers uh, come along? Well, that also happened in the 1970s. But, you know, the, the precursors were there even in the late 1960s. So, uh, but it's been the last 40, 50 years that we've developed the kind of electronics, the kind of computing power that would allow you to do that. Yep. It's a man's dream. You no longer you know, uh, ruin your marriage by uh, hitting the clicker and going through all the channels. Uh, you just get a couple of hundred million at once. <laughs> I don't know that I could take, I can't take the channels I watch now, so I'm not sure I could do that. Um, when we talk about the effort to either contact or receive communication from some other form of extraterrestrial life that we don't know exists, or even if it exists, um, is is radio still our best opportunity? Are radio waves still the best chance at doing that? Well, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that, J.B. I mean, we use radio uh, primarily, but not exclusively. As you point out, we've 
We've also been busy developing techniques for looking for flashing lasers or something else like that. But what you want is some sort of uh, communication medium that goes through the gas and dust of, of space. I mean, you think space is empty. It's not quite empty. There's gas and dust in space. So if you're talking about communication over big distances, that kind of blocks the view. So, uh, but radio goes right through all that, so that's an advantage. Infrared light goes through it, too, so maybe you could use infrared light. Uh, infrared light. But there are plenty of other suggestions. I get emails from people essentially every week saying, oh, you guys using radio, that's so old school. You know, you should be looking for, I don't know, subspace communication. That's what they use on Star Trek. Well, yeah, but Star Trek is fiction, so that's a problem. Nobody knows how to make a subspace communication set, whatever that is. Uh, sometimes they say, well, gravity waves or neutrinos or this, that, and the other. I mean, there are lots of suggestions, and they're not all crazy, but it's still the case that uh, radio seems like a good bet, or light. They're the same thing, really. Yeah, I was just going to ask that question. Um, light is part of the same, ultimately the same spectrum. It's just a different part of the spectrum uh, as radio waves. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously there's a visual component, but does light get obstructed by that space dust and that cosmic material that you were talking about? Yeah, well, it does. I mean, certainly visual light, the kind of light you see with your eyes. I mean, anybody who goes to a dark spot on the on the surface of the planet, if you can still find one, there, there are three left, I think, somewhere. Uh, you know, you look up, you can see the Milky Way, and uh, when there's no moon and the Milky Way uh, looks a little brighter, you'll notice that there's some dark patches there, you know, and those are just big clouds of dust in our own Milky Way. So, you don't need anything more than a clear night and a dark night, and you can see the dust for yourself. Uh, it's, it's, it's a problem if you're talking about communication over distances that are more than, I don't know, maybe a thousand light years or something like that. Then it becomes a real problem. And you had said it um, in, in, when I first asked about radio itself, but um, you know, when we look at radio as a form of communication here on Earth, we're, we're seeing that as a technology that um, kind of changed the way we live, but it's starting with the digital age to be changed again. Can we assume, and I know the answer to this is going to be going to be maybe, can we assume that a civilization that may have a 100,000-year um, head start on us in technology is even going to be paying attention to radio or using radio as any form of communication? Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to ask the aliens that, but I, I think so. I mean, the reason we use radio is not be, you know, just because we invented the vacuum tube or something like that. It's because we learned some fundamental physics, right, about you know, how, well, the, the kind of waves that can be produced by charged particles. Or something. This, is, this is physics that goes back to the American Civil War. Uh, that's when the equations that govern light and radio waves were written down. So that's old physics. And the technology can say, oh, yeah, radio, but now we have our cell phones. Well, how do cell phones work? Well, radio, actually. I mean, they're digital. They're sending digital signals. But television, radio, whether it's, you know, the high-definition radio or high-definition television, I mean, they may be digital signals, but they're still using radio as the, uh, as the medium. And it, to me, it's a bit like saying, well, you know, the wheel, that was in, invented uh, thousands of years ago. I, I think we're beyond the wheel. We should stop using the wheel. Well, nobody's going to stop using the wheel. You're going to use the wheel till the cows come home, right? Because it's a, it's a permanently useful thing. And I think the same is true for uh, radio and light. No matter what else we might do, I think radio and light are still going to be hanging in there for whatever purpose.
There are many, and we've had them, many of them on this program, that talk about um, the fact that we may already have been and are being visited by alien craft. You know, some say this is part of the UFO phenomena. Um, do you think we are? Do you think that's actually occurring or has occurred? Well, J.P., this will offend uh, 87% of the listeners, but uh, I don't. So there you go. Uh, I've written, you know, more than once on this subject, and I, I deal with it uh, on a daily basis, I would say. Essentially, every day I get an email or a phone call from somebody who uh, thinks that they have seen something. I got a, an email today from some fellow. Uh, where was he? He was somewhere in Latin America, I think. Anyhow, he had these photos he had made, and they showed some strange lights in the sky, and he wanted my opinion, which I was happy to give him. Uh, I don't think they were alien craft. They were actually uh, aberrations. They were imperfections, if you will, in the optics in his camera lens, and that was actually pretty obvious. Photography happens to be a hobby of mine, so a lot of this I can sort of recognize. Uh, But, you know, a third of the population thinks that we are being visited. My standpoint on this is that, well... It's, you know, it's hard from several points of view to understand why we would be being visited, but that's all sociology. Maybe it's not true. The question is, is the evidence good? And that's where I really part company with those who think we are being visited, because I don't think the evidence is very good. I've never seen anything that, uh, that convinces me. All right, and this, I know this isn't uh, necessarily what we were going to talk about tonight, and it may not be your area of expertise, but I'm just curious as to what you think, because there have been things that people have seen that kind of defy explanation, whether it's odd formations of light or um, something even a little bit more sinister than that. Do you have any opinion on what any of that might be? Or are they looking at military uh, aircraft that are, that are yet secret, or, or is it something completely different than that? Well, I think it's a you know mixed bag. I mean, uh, I obviously can't say are they seeing secret military aircraft because those military aircraft would be secret. So <laughs> right. obviously, I don't know, but you know, I, probably in some cases that's what they're seeing. And in, in, in something like ninety percent of the cases, this is the result of you know some of the early studies that were done on the UFO phenomenon. Because of course, the Air Force was interested in this problem for a long time. Uh, simply because I, I don't know whether they ever thought that they were alien craft, but they thought they might be Soviet craft, that for sure. And so they wanted to know what they were. And they spent many years collecting data and looking at the data, and they had various commissions look at the data. And, you know, it always came out pretty much the same way that 80 or 90% of the cases could be explained as very prosaic stuff aircraft, balloons, satellites, planets, stuff like that. And then 10% of them, they didn't know what they were. Well, but that doesn't prove they're alien craft. It just means you don't know what they were. I mean, very few homicides will. I don't know, a little more than half of all homicides get solved, but 30, 40, 50 percent of them don't. But that doesn't mean that they weren't committed by humans. It just means, you know, it's still mysterious. When we um, look to the skies, when we use uh, whatever means we have to actually look into space, and those um, efforts have been bolstered by things like the Hubble Space Telescope and other um, improvements in our technology, is that um, effort giving us any information that may help us point these radio signals in a certain direction or point our antenna in a certain direction? Well, traditionally they have. I mean, not so much Hubble, because Hubble is not so good at finding planets, for example. But there was another uh, telescope in space in orbit uh, called Kepler. They just shut it down about two weeks ago, I think. Uh, Kepler was a mission that lasted on the order of a decade, 
and its job was just to find planets around other stars, and it was incredibly successful. It was not a very expensive mission by NASA standards, and yet this thing found three or 4,000 planets around other stars. It's fabulously successful. In any case, uh, so that, that has helped because that is the kind of experiment that has shown that essentially all stars have planets. Planets are really, really, really common. They're just everywhere. And, you know, a lot of them are like Jupiter or Pluto or, well, if you consider that a planet, or Mercury or Venus or, you know, kind of inhospitable for life. But, you know, they're not all bad. They can't all be bad. Uh, we, we know of three or four dozen that seem to be rather similar in size to the Earth and at the right distance from their stars, so they might have liquid oceans and atmospheres. We don't know if they have liquid oceans and atmospheres, but at least these are good candidates. I mean, what we're finding is that the universe seems to be pretty friendly toward the idea of biology. I mean, there seem to be a lot of places where it could cook up. So if you have tens of billions, which is probably the, the number for our own galaxy, tens of billions of cousins of Earth, you know, it's unless you think that life is a very unlikely thing to happen or that intelligence is a very unlikely thing to happen, then you're going to have a lot of, a lot of people, people, a lot of aliens out there. Seth, I want to ask you about, uh, and this again, you know, so many of these questions we just don't have answers to, obviously, but I'm just curious as to your opinion. If there is intelligent extraterrestrial life, what do you think we'll, we'll find first? Do you think we will find uh, a humanoid type life, or is it going to be something that's going to look like it's from Star Wars, one of these very, very strange creatures, or, or is it going to be microbial? And that may not be intelligent, but it would be life. Well, I don't know. Most of the bacteria I know are not very clever, but <laughs> except at being bacteria, they're good at that. Very good at uh, that. Well, I, if you listen to NASA, they're, they're kind of convinced that uh, we'll find bacterial life first because we may find it in our own solar system. And you can, you know, you can build a rocket to go to Mars or some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn that might have life. So there's at least a half dozen other places in our solar system that might have biology, but it would be microscopic biology. So we may find that first. As far as whether the intelligent aliens will look like us or not, I wouldn't count on them looking like us or like any of the things you saw in the Mose Eisley Cantina because... Um, you know, I mean, I, you just go to the zoo and look around. That's all life that's based on DNA, and very little of it looks like us. And when we talk about intelligence, what what level of intelligence makes the threshold for us to say, okay, that is intelligent extraterrestrial life? Can, can you give us some kind of example? Well, you know, I'm tempted to say they write good poetry or something, but <laughs> the answer is... If, if they can build a radio transmitter or a big laser, then we have a chance of finding them. So anything we find will at least be at that level. So that's, you know, that's kind of an operational definition to say they're intelligent if they can build a radio transmitter, which, by the way, leaves out of, the, out of consideration most of my friends. But <laughs> nonetheless, that's, uh, that's kind of it. I mean, you know, there may be lots and lots of life out there that's as clever uh, or as sophisticated as the Romans, for example, but you're not going to be able to detect them from light years away. So they don't count as being intelligent, even though, you know, some of them were uh, pretty darn intelligent. We have uh, just about a minute left before we have to go to break here. Now, you've got some books out. One of them, uh, the most recent one, I believe, is called Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Where can people find out more information about your books? Well, I mean, they can just look it up on the web. 
and uh, you know, I, I think you can still order it, and you can certainly get them used for probably less than the postage. I don't know, but the, or maybe the local library. But Confessions of the Alien uh, Alien of an Alien Hunter. I'll get it right. And uh, I also have a textbook and some other trade books as well. But uh, I'd recommend Confessions as the one to read. But we have a great show. We'll uh, continue with our guest, Seth Shawstack, in just a few moments. We'll also take your phone calls. Um, reminder, tomorrow night, Al Ridenauer will be with us. He's an author and a podcaster. He'll be talking about his book, which is called The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. It happens to be the only English language book that explores the Krampus tradition in depth. He also does the podcast Bone and Sickle, and that talks about the historical intersection of horror and folklore, and it's dram- dram- uh, dram- dramatized by uh, with music and sound effects. That'll be an er- interesting conversation tomorrow night. And then for the next two nights, Wednesday and Thursday night, of course, we'll be uh, uh, observing the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be featuring some best of programs uh, for you on those two nights, and we'll be back with you live uh, next Monday night. A lot of great stuff coming up, though. And also, don't forget to visit the website. Check out the Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug. It makes to a makes a great holiday gift. It's right there on the website. You can order it. Very simple. And then also uh, go to the Facebook page. Give it a like. And I'd appreciate it if you stop by mine. Mine is, you can find it in two ways. It's either JVJ Paranormal or just at JV Johnson. And love to have you give that Facebook page alike. Our phone number is 844-687-7669. Like I said, we will be taking your phone calls in just a few moments. Um, Let's bring our guest back in. Again, Seth Shawstack is with us. He's a senior astronomer for SETI. Seth, recently in the news, um, some scientists were talking about an object that was passing through our solar solar system that at first uh, it was just assumed it was a space rock, and it very well may have been just a space rock. But some scientists were starting to think it wasn't because of its shape and the way it was traveling that it may in fact have been artificial and some kind of artifact or some type of alien craft or something. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, actually, this was a paper written by a couple of guys at Harvard, uh, led by Avi Loeb. Avi Loeb is actually the chairman of the Harvard Astronomy Department. These guys know what they're talking about, but they noticed that this this rock, this object, I, I, I'm not going to call it a rock because you, maybe you don't know whether it's a rock, but an object, an object that was discovered in our solar system about the size of the Rose Bowl. I mean, it's except that it's it's much longer than it is wide, so it's kind of like a cigar that's the size of the Rose Bowl. Uh, it was, you know, in our solar system, and by looking at its orbit, you could tell this wasn't something that originated in our solar system. We, we know of lots and lots of asteroids and comets and things like that, but they all uh, were born in our solar system. They all live in our solar system. This was a, an intruder. It was like finding a strange guy in your in your dining room one evening, okay? Not the usual family members. <laughs> so this thing was looked at, and people, you know, is it an asteroid? Is it a comet? These things can get tossed out of somebody else's solar system. But the Harvard guys are saying, wait a minute, there's some properties of this thing that make it look like maybe it isn't natural. Maybe it isn't a rock. Maybe it isn't a comet, which is basically an ice ball, right? Maybe it is a piece of alien hardware. And, of course... That story uh, woke people up. A lot of people, uh, you know, got interested in that. 
What types of tests or maybe it's just observations can we perform from our vantage points that would give us some clues as to what it was? Is there a way we can tell what its composition is, uh, whether it was hollow, anything like that? Well, that's hard to do. And in particular, it's hard to do because this thing is already on its way out. In fact, it was on its way out of the solar system at the time we discovered it. It already had zipped around the sun, as uh, you know, all comets and asteroids do. And it was on its way to leave the solar system. Right at the moment, it's out somewhere, I think it's between Mars and Jupiter, somewhere like that. And it's moving at, you know, like, I don't know, 10 miles a second or something on that order. So it's leaving, and, and you can point the biggest telescope we've got in the world at this thing, and you can't see it anymore. So it's pretty tough to get any more information. Now, uh, the argument of the Harvard guys was that, look, this thing, you know, just didn't seem to behave like a rock because it had this, this sort of anomalous motion. It seemed to be, you know, changing its speed in a way that wasn't uh, indicative of a, just a rock that had fallen into our solar system. It seemed to be something that, that had some source of power. And what they were suggesting was, well, maybe, maybe it was what's called a, a light sail. This is, you know, something that's been proposed for sending... Uh, space spacecraft from one place to the next to another right here on Earth, and what it is is just essentially a very very big sheet of aluminum foil painted black on one side, so it's shiny one side, black on the other, and in fact it doesn't even have to be black on the other. And the the pressure of light light will push on a reflective surface like that and cause it to move. So it's not very much. I mean, you know, your desk lamp is not pushing stuff on your desk very hard, but it does push. And so if you have this thing in space where there's no friction, it could be this thing went around the sun and was pushed by the light of the sun to, uh, into this strange motion, and that's what did it. Great idea. They did the math. It seems to you know, be all very reasonable. The only thing is nobody knows because you can't do any more measurements on it, and the measurements that were made were certainly not conclusive. The only way we're ever going to know what Oumuamua, which is the name of this thing, the only way we're going to know what that is or was is to find another one. If another one comes in and, and you know, it uh, clearly is uh, something artificial, then I think uh, uh, Avi Loeb himself says you're going to spend the money to build a giant rocket that can catch up with these things and take a look at them up close. But I think that, you know, 99% of the, the money is on this being a comet or asteroid, I suspect that the overwhelming majority of astronomers think it's just a comet. But, you know, they could be wrong. You mentioned a, a light sail, and it reminds me, and I'm sure this is the, exactly the same principle, but I remember in seeing in, you know, in science class those little globes that kind of look like a light bulb, and they've got four little, uh, I don't know, a, a sails, I guess you would call them, in them, and when the light hits them, they start to spin. And I guess it was in a vacuum in there, so it makes it very easy for it to spin. But that's kind of the principle you're talking about. Well, yeah, though, yeah, I know they, they, with the four little veins, yeah. black on one side. Actually, it turns out I, I always thought that they worked by light pressure too, but I seem to recall, perhaps incorrectly, JV, but I seem to recall that those things actually work uh, due to something else, just to due to a thermal. Effect. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, you would know better than me. All right, let's go to our phone lines here. Let's uh, let's take a call from Denver. This is Judy. Hi, Judy. Welcome to the program. Hi, uh, Jay. Um, not sure what your name is. I watch a program every night. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, uh, it's JV. And, I and saw a UFO in 1957, and I'm 73 now, so you can figure how long that's been. 
my mother and I were driving back from delivering a girlfriend of mine to her home, which was on the bottom of Floyd Hill, which is Highway 40, west of Denver, now I-70. It's up by El Rancho Restaurant, the road to Bergen Park and to Evergreen. And we lived right on the point of the hill, but we were driving back from Denver, or not Denver, but uh, from Floyd Hill when we pulled up on Highway 40, both of us saw a UFO. And there is nothing in the 73 years that I've lived that can ever come close to the, the military's type of flying that they have. I don't care whether it's a jet, a rocket, RPG. They all start from zero and accelerate, you know. And are you suggesting that this, what you saw, did not do that? Yeah, it did not. When when we talked about it, it stopped. And I don't mean it decelerated. It just stopped and hoovered. And it went up a little bit. Let's get, let's get. And Mom says, I think we better head home. Hmm. So it scared you. It frightened you. Well, she was kind of scared. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get. I want to get Seth's thoughts on that. Um, you know, we, these are the types of reports we hear, Seth, and um, you know, it, we don't know what they are. That's why they're unidentified. But when you hear a story like that, what do you think? Well, I uh, I have to tell Judy this: uh, the number of people that see UFOs. I mean, every day. It's like there are 30 reports. Those are the ones that get reported. And, Judy, I don't know if you reported this to anybody, but those are ones that actually, so, you know, essentially every hour there's another sighting somewhat similar to what you say. They see something in the sky that they don't understand. Very often they they say, you know, it came to a stop or it accelerated and stuff like that. Now, you know, I remember listening to a guy telling me this in Boulder, which isn't too far from where you are, Many years ago, and uh, you know, he he saw something. There was some guys there in Boulder who had uh, videos that they had made. But unfortunately, all the videos they made, curiously, all pointed in the direction of the Denver International Airport. So I, I kind of suspect what they were seeing were aircraft. Aircraft can can produce the kind of uh, motion that you saw because you know you're driving along and the airplane's moving along. And if suddenly it, you know, it, it turns a little bit so that it's aimed more or less in your direction, then it'll seem as if it stopped, right? So I don't know what it was. It was 1957. That's a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, the explanation for most of these things can be found if you, you know, report them right away and somebody can look into aircraft records and stuff like that. Judy, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. We appreciate it. Our guest tonight, Seth Shawstack, we're talking about the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life throughout the universe. And um, Seth, I have to go back to the phone lines because I, I apparently cut Judy off prematurely. She did want to add one more point to her story. Judy, sorry about that. Welcome back. You said there's something about the FBI was involved here? Yes. About a month after I checked out these books and I started getting some good photos of pilots photographing UFOs, they came up to my house uh, that my dad had up on top of Bill Rancho Hill and wanted the books. They even opened up the high school so they could get the books out of the locker in my gym locker and in my uh, chair that I had that had a seat in it. 
And they weren't about to give up until they got those books. They got the janitor up there to open the school up. <laughs> so wait a second. Just, just I so never we, could find those books after they took them. Just so we understand, after you had this sighting, you took books mm-hmm. out to, to read up about this type of... Yeah, UFOs. Yeah. You did. And it was the shape of a egg in a frying pan. Okay. And a big yolk. Okay, so you took the books out, and the FBI came in search of the books, and you were in school at the time? Yeah. Wow. uh, Junior high. Okay, and once they took those books, did you ever hear from anybody else after that, or did you ever have any more sightings? Interesting. Yeah, I tried all about 10 years ago to look up those books again, because Chuck and a friend saw another UFO. And I thought, well, I'll see if I can find those books. I only saw one, and it didn't have anything like it had before. The book had changed. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. And the other three, I couldn't, I couldn't pull them. Well, I originally got them from Evergreen High School. I went down to Golden. I got one out of Golden. I got one out of Denver yeah. Library. Well, and um, I tried it again. Never finished. Well, thank, thanks again for uh, sharing the rest of that story. That is that is that is bizarre, and I, I'm assuming, um, Seth, that um, you've probably heard similar stories of government involvement. I don't know if the Men in Black thing. I haven't. I don't know what to believe at this point. But does that uh, does any of that ring any bells for you? Well, I've I've never seen the Men in Black. I have to say that uh, about 20 years ago, we got a signal that for most of a day looked like it might be the real thing, and. Uh, we were all sitting around looking at computer monitors, looking at this signal, trying to figure out what it was. And uh, I kept waiting for the men in black to show up. They they didn't. I kept waiting for you know somebody to call up and show some interest, and none of that happened either. Even my mom didn't call, I have to say. So uh, <laughs> I, but I, I don't know about any real men in black, if there really are. If the government can afford to pay the salaries of those guys, maybe I should sign up. It, it might be an interesting job. All right. Well, again, thank you to uh, Judy for sharing that. Again, this is going to be a, a short segment here before we have to go to break. Um, we, when you um, are performing these searches with SETI, is there a place that people can go to be updated on that effort specifically? Yeah, there is. There is a website, um, yeah, which, <laughs> lamentably, I don't find. I can't. I can't find it in my brain at the moment. But the best thing to do is go to the SETI Institute website. That's our sort of home website. And that's just SETI.org. Type that in, and uh, you'll, you'll find uh, the, the links there. So you can go see what the antennas are doing at any given moment. We use a, a series of 42 antennas. They're in the Cascade Mountains of Northern California, even farther north in San Francisco. They're about 300 miles north of San Francisco in the mountains there. And uh, you can you can see you know there's a webcam so you can see them sitting there or moving across the sky and you can also uh, there's a star map and shows you what they're they're pointing at at any given time. Okay, when we come back I, and when I opened up our discussion, Seth, I said I was asking the million dollar question. When we come back, I've got the two million dollar question. That's what we have to look forward to on the other side of the break. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Our guest our guest tonight is Seth Shawstack. And Seth, I had opened up the program with a million dollar question, which is, is are we alone in the universe? And I think maybe the two million dollar question might be something that uh, people such as Stephen Hawking had actually posed. And that's the concern that if we are discovered, 
that we are putting ourselves at great risk. And I know you've said that the effort really is us listening more so than us um, sending signals out to be discovered. Um, But either way, let's talk about what would happen and should we fear being discovered once uh, once we may or may not know of somebody listening to us. Well, I mean, that's a pretty emotional topic, J.V. There are a lot of people who get very exercised about uh, efforts to broadcast. Uh, SETI does not broadcast. I mean, it's a, it's a listening program exclusively. In fact, our antennas don't have, don't have transmitters on them, so not much we could do to broadcast. But there are some antennas, such as the one down in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo uh, radio telescope, which does have a, have a very powerful transmitter on it. It's, you know, a radar transmitter. So, you know, there are people who do want to transmit. Is it dangerous? Nobody knows. I mean, we don't know what the aliens would be like. Maybe they're all friendly, and they, they just love sitting around reading poetry to one another. Um, but then again, maybe some of them are <laughs> aggressive. I mean, you just don't know. But there is this to consider. If they have the technology to actually hurt us, in other words, if they can get into a rocket or whatever and come light years of distance to Earth and then do something like, you know, I don't know, incinerate Dayton, Ohio or something, just on a bet. I mean, if, if they have the capability to do that, then they also probably have some very large antennas that would allow them to pick up the transmissions that have been leaking off the Earth for, you know, the last 70 years. So there's, in a sense, no, no hiding. I mean, you can worry about it if you want. But, you know, we, we have powerful radars, we have television, we have FM radio, we have all of that. And that's, in a sense, you know, it's, it's telling the aliens we're here just about uh, every, every day another planet comes within the range of those transmissions. So, Does the, um, whether we're listening or sending signals, those signals have to travel. We've talked about the great distances they travel. And yes, they do travel at the speed of light. But is there a decay process to those signals? Do they eventually become undetectable because they become too weak? Well, they do become weaker with time, that's for sure. Uh, Just like, you know, you take the sun, and uh, it's pretty bright in the sky, but if you moved it twice as far away, it would be one-fourth as bright. And if you moved it to the distances of some of the nearer stars, you'd have a hard time seeing it. Okay, so obviously radio is just like light, and it does get weaker with distance. That's high school physics. But uh, it never gets to a distance where you have no chance of being able to detect it. Because all you have to do is build a bigger instrument, right? I mean, there, there are stars, you know, millions of light years away that you can't see with, the, you know, most telescopes. But if you build a big enough telescope, then you can see it. So it's never that the signal just sort of kind of disintegrates and crumbles or something like that. I mean, it's, it's always there. It just gets weaker. And if you have a big enough antenna, you can pick up something at any distance. It's one thing to receive the signals, and as you said, technology has changed the way we can uh, listen by listening to many, many frequencies simultaneously. But once we get that information, I imagine that uh, digital technology has also given us the ability to analyze those signals for patterns or other uh, things that may seem uh, non-random that would indicate some kind of intelligence. Well, you know, a lot of the public certainly thinks that that's what we do, that we have all this electronics and it's taken this incoming cosmic static and it's looking for patterns in there, you know, the, the prime numbers or whatever, whatever they've seen on television in the past two weeks. <laughs> right. They figure that's what we're looking for. But in fact, it's very hard to uh, 
take that incoming static and look for any sort of modulation, as it's called, any sort of message in there. That requires a lot of sensitivity. And you have to assume that because the aliens are far away, the signal's not going to be very strong. So you don't have enough sensitivity to do that. What we do instead is we look for what's called the carrier wave. Now, you know, the, the AM radio stations that this program is on, uh, if, if there are AM radio stations, they use what's called a carrier. Even the FM uh, stations do that. It's, it's one part of the radio dial, if you will, where they put a lot of transmitter power that helps the receiver to decode the message. So that's what we look for. We look for that on-the-air sign, if you will, uh, technological on-the-air sign that tells you that there's a signal there. But we don't know what message might be in there. Now, if you find that on-the-air sign, if you know there's actually a station at this frequency, you can be sure that all the money problems that SETI has would be over in a moment, and uh, you know somebody would put big money into it. Maybe the government would get involved and you'd build a really huge set of antennas and go back and look for the message. But we don't look for messages now. If we are, were to detect something that we could, uh, w- with, without much doubt, assume it is uh, uh, artificial, it's, it's made by some form of intelligence, what are your thoughts on the next step? Do we try to make contact, or, we, or do we just continue to listen and see what happens? Well, I'm, I'm sure people would continue to listen. You can be sure that, you know, this would no longer be sort of a niche uh, research project, that there would be big efforts all around the world, you know, to uh, study the sky. And in particular, wherever this signal is coming from, that would become the most studied spot on the, on the sky for sure. Um, so, you, of course, you would do that. And you would look for, you know, similar signals coming from other directions, right? But... I'm sure that there would be people who would say, hey, look, let's send them back uh, a reply. Let's say, hey, we're the Earthlings, and we'd really like to meet you guys because, you know, uh, we have some, uh, you know, plenty of used cars we want to sell you or whatever. Now, you could do that, but, of course, one of the things you might be able to figure out right from the get-go is how far away this signal is coming from. You might be able to localize it to some star system on the sky, and if you could do that, well, I mean, depending on how far away they are, you might not need to jump to the microphone and start broadcasting because if they're 500 light years away, right, and you, you, you broadcast back, hey, look, uh, just uh, send in your uh, request for what top 40 hits <laughs> you want me to spin here, um, it, it's going to take 500 years for them to get that message and another 500 years for their reply to get back to you. So, you know, there may not be much hurry in terms of broadcasting anything back. It depends on how far away they are. Is there any technology or theory uh, that is um, starting to show some promise for bending these times? In other words, making the, that communication essentially faster than the speed of light, whether or not the, the signal actually travels that or it uses some type of, and I'm going to use words that I don't completely understand, Seth, so forgive me, but wormhole or something else that distorts time? Well, everybody hopes for this, particularly the science fiction writers, uh, because if you can't go faster than the speed of light, if you can't send information faster than the speed of light, then, uh, you know, a lot of uh, our spacefaring future, a lot of our contact with the others in the universe is going to be kind of limited. Right? It's sort of like, I don't know, you're born on a farm somewhere in the Midwest, and, you know, you never get a car, and you, you have to walk everywhere you want to go. That's going to kind of limit your contacts. And 
you could say, well, yeah, but okay, the speed of light, that's just, we'll, we'll beat that someday. Well, maybe, maybe we will, but, you know, there are very fundamental physical reasons. And when I say physical, I mean physics, uh, why the speed of light may be the limit for sending information. I get emails all the time from people who say, oh, quantum entanglement. There, there's a couple of words you can use at your next cocktail party. Uh, quantum entanglement, that's instantaneous. So you use that to communicate. That's what the aliens will do. But it turns out that quantum entanglement, yeah, it works instantaneously, but it doesn't allow you to send information faster than the speed of light. So if you're talking communication or you're talking transportation, Al Einstein says you're limited to the speed of light, and it could be that he is right and may be right forever. Have any of these probing uh, spacecraft that uh, we have sent out, and some, I think we just had recently had the first one leave our solar system, or I may have that wrong, but I know that we're getting in, in uh, to distances that we haven't gotten to before. Are any of those craft set up to help this search? Well, they're not set up to do SETI. They all have uh, messages. They all have greeting cards, you know, bolted to the outside. I mean, the Pioneer spacecraft, which were launched in the early 1970s, uh, they, you know, they have that plaque uh, about the size of an automobile license plate, and it has the nudie cutie couple on it. And the guy's raised his hand, you know, like, like I don't know, either he's saying hello or maybe that's the universal symbol of war to the Klingons. Who knows? But you know, so they have plaques, uh, and the Voyager spacecraft, which were launched a few years later, they have records, actual, you know, physical records, um, which have you know, some music on them and people saying hello and, you know, a bunch of different languages and some photos. So these greeting cards have been sent into space, but they're going at the speed of these rockets. And these rockets go, you know, five or ten miles a second. I mean, that's, that's great if you're planning a weekend trip to, I don't know, Cincinnati, but that's pretty slow if you're going to go to the nearest stars <laughs> because at, at that speed it takes 100,000 years to get to the next star over. There might not be any aliens there, and they'll probably never see the spacecraft anyhow because, you know, it's about the size of a VW Beetle lost in the depths of space. It's going to be very hard to find. So we have done all this stuff, but it's more as a kind of a demonstration for ourselves. How is SETI funded? Well, my usual response to that is not very well. Uh, the the uh, program, when I joined it, actually, originally, it was a NASA program. So there was a little bit of the NASA budget. One part in a thousand of the NASA budget was allocated for SETI. And, uh, but that was killed in 1993 by a congressman from Nevada, strangely Nevada, but and um, since then, NASA has not funded any SETI research to speak of, really not. So it's all funded. I mean, the SETI Institute's funding for SETI all comes from donations. So that, that's where it comes from. It's, it's very difficult to do science that way. And I'm assuming that on the website there is a way if folks wanted to contribute to the effort? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, my, my boss would appreciate it. And is that is that like a membership organization? Can they join the organization, or is it just a contribution or donation of some well, kind? Well, we we did have a membership organization for a while, but um, that uh, it's not clear that that was ever valued by the people who sent us uh, donations. They wanted to donate, and they didn't care whether you know we sent them newsletters and things like that. But you will get some material from the institute for sure. You'll get updates on things we're doing, and of course you can find that also on the website. But uh, 
Yeah, you, you, it's not really a membership organization, although you will get correspondence from us for sure to begin with to thank you. And it is because we're a nonprofit organization; it is tax deductible too. So they're not doing—they're not doing it for the tote bag. <laughs> no, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we just have a couple minutes left here, um, Seth. We've talked about your books a little bit. What other things would you like to point people to to keep track of your work, SETI's work, and uh, whatever else they should be paying attention to? Well, I would certainly commend the SETI Institute's website to people if they're interested in this stuff. The SETI Institute actually does. Lots of research. SETI is only one project there. When I when I joined it, it was the only project. But uh, there are many, many more projects now that are in the field of what's called astrobiology. So that's you know looking for life, but life that, as we discussed earlier, might not be terribly intelligent, namely the kind of life you might find under the rusty, dusty surface of Mars or maybe underneath the icy crust of Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon Enceladus or Enceladus, depending on how you want to put the accent, um, and, and, and in other places in the solar system. So that's what most of the scientists at the Institute work on, because there is money for that. That's uh, mostly NASA-funded. It's called astrobiology. And in fact, if you're really interested in astrobiology and you're going to college, you can take courses in it, and you can even do graduate work in astrobiology. So that's a big field, and we do a lot of that kind of research, too. But you can find all that on the, uh, on the website. And, Seth, is there, is there, you mentioned um, uh, a point where you, you were monitoring a signal that actually created a lot of excitement for a while. Um, is there any such signal right now that you're watching at SETI that you uh, have a question mark on that you, you are maybe hopeful uh, that might turn into something? Well, uh, no, because the way it works is... When we pick up a signal that looks interesting, and, and by the way, you know, people have this idea, mostly from the movies, I guess, or TV shows, that you know, you're sitting around looking bored, looking bored, looking bored, and then suddenly you hear a, a, some sort of squeal come out of the equipment, or you see some sort of spike on a screen, and everybody gets excited and starts jumping up and down and shouting into their walkie-talkies and so forth. Well, but it isn't that way. You get signals about every 10 seconds. Because remember, you're, you're monitoring, in our case, 70 million channels simultaneously with a bunch of big antennas. So, of course, you pick up signals. But the software is pretty good at analyzing all this stuff and deciding, look, is this likely to be ET or is this a satellite orbiting the Earth that is, you know, sending some telemetry back to Earth? And that's what we're picking up. And so far, you know, it's, it's been all of that. It's, we found intelligent life, but it's intelligent life on Earth. And nobody's terribly interested in that. So, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that when we do get a signal, the equipment immediately checks it out. It doesn't wait for a week, you know, while people think about it or, you know, scratch their heads or anything like that. All signals are checked out essentially immediately, within a minute or so. So, uh, you know, if you, if you do that, then you don't end up with any mysteries that you're worried about two weeks later. Seth, it's been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate the information and the time, and uh, hopefully you'll agree to come back on the program, especially if you pick up one of those signals that has you looking at it with great interest. All right, J.B. Thanks so very much. All right. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm going to take a break. I'll come back. We'll wrap things up. Again, thank you to Seth Shostak for being with us tonight. Don't go away. We've got more to come. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJ Taps. Um, really, really interesting, and I hope we get, get him back on the program sometime soon. Once again, I will ask you all to send your 
positive thoughts, love, affection, and healing thoughts to uh, Jason's dad, who's um, who's suffering right now. Well, I don't know about suffering, but he's he's taken a turn for his for the worse in his health, and that's why Jason hasn't been able to be here and probably won't be with us again tomorrow night. Although I don't know for sure. Um, I guess um, we'll all hope that uh, things things take a positive turn here, uh, at least uh, soon. Um, let's see. So tomorrow night we will be talking with Al Ridenauer, and we'll be talking about his book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, which is the only English language book that explores the Krampus tradition in depth. You all know that Krampus thing after that movie came out a few years back. It's kind of becoming more, a little more popular. I think Krampus Day is December 5th, so... We're right around the corner from that. I also hope you all have some great Thanksgiving Day plans. Um, Get to enjoy it with friends and family. We will have best of programs for Wednesday night and Thursday night as we honor and um, observe Thanksgiving. That's going to do it for tonight. Again, thank you for being here. Uh, It's been a terrific evening, a terrific conversation, and we'll catch you all tomorrow night. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.